welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 114 for June 2021. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. I used to host a podcast called IndieCider, where I interviewed indie game developers. And one of the reasons I did that isn't just because indie games are on the forefront, in my opinion, of some of the creative storytelling that this medium is capable of, but also because indie games don't have the kind of marketing that big budgets do. Like They don't end up on the front page of YouTube that often. They they don't end up on the cover of Game Informer magazine. They don't have that kind of marketing budget. And that makes it all the more important to market these games because they're so easily overlooked. It's not just that kind of communication and connection that's needed nowadays, especially with the pandemic. So many of us are online so much more that we're all feeling a little bit severed from each other. So marketing indie games, talking to each other, building community, these are all really important things nowadays. And I'm so delighted today to talk to one person who's trying to address all of these issues impressively. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Melissa Chaplin, Head of Client Strategy for Game If You Are. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making time for me. We had to navigate some time zones to get here because you're all the way over in the UK. Is that correct? Yes, I am in, in London. So, um, you know, the stereotypical place everyone assumes you're living in when you live in the UK. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually... Actually in Westminster, so bang in the middle. I've only had one opportunity to go to London, but it actually was as foggy as they say it was. Is that your experience as well? (laughs) Um, Well, actually, I'm originally from the northeast of England. Um, So for me, London is uncomfortably warm. And I know that probably sounds, um, you know, absolutely... um, you know, bonkers uh, to most people, but it gets it gets beyond twenty degrees Celsius, and I start feeling uncomfortable. I'm a um, I'm definitely definitely a pasty gamer stereotype. <laughs> yeah, I would on most occasions probably rather be inside than out. I, I love to get outside for a good hike and a bike, but at the end of the day, yeah, just <laughs> keep me inside and put me in front of a television. Absolutely. But we are here today to talk about video games. You are head of client strategy, as I mentioned, at Game If You Are. So in a nutshell, what is Game If You Are? Game If You Are is a full-service marketing and PR agency um, specifically for indie games. So full-service means that, um, you know, Game If You Are does a bit of everything. And in theory, you know, a client could come to us and say, we want you to handle every aspect of marketing from start to finish for this project. And we could do that. Now, normally, because we're working with indies, it winds up being a bit more of a collaborative project than that. Um, Most developers come to us and say, you know, um, I want help with these aspects, but I'm going to handle this stuff myself, you know, for um, budget reasons, potentially, or, you know, particularly with the community stuff, often developers want to be at the kind of forefront of that. So, you know, it does usually wind up being something in between, not just us doing everything, but also not not the developers taking charge of everything either. Um, we do, you know, outreach to press, influencers. Uh, we do strategic planning, which is uh, my ballpark. Um, social media, you know, the real, the real full, full shebang. Wow. So you are writing press releases. You're trying to get the developers onto podcasts. Are you editing game trailers? 
Uh, so we have done some game trailers. Um, I uh, We don't usually do them in-house. Um, usually we work with uh, freelancers for that sort of thing. Um, but I did actually do one myself in-house last year for a game called Star Seeker and the Secret of the Sorceress Standoff. Um, which was a, a bit of a labor of love for me. So um, that was a, a nice opportunity. That's fantastic. And when does all this planning start? I mean, I've read online that marketing should begin before the first line of code is put into place. Are most indie developers thinking about marketing that early? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I get I get emails from people ranging from, you know, people who are thinking about it very early, which is great to people who are releasing a game, you know, in a week's time, um, or even more painfully, people who say, oh, I launched my game last month and it didn't go well, you know, can you help me with marketing? Which is um, which is always very sad to see because you can't really unring that bell and, you know, there's not much you can do after the fact. Um, there's some things, but not, not a great deal. Um, broadly, I would say most people come to us when they're about, you know, three to six months out of a press beat, that doesn't necessarily mean they're full launch. Some people come when they're kind of like, mm, we're going to announce in a couple of months. Um, some people come before kind of a beta or an early access, but usually people start to think about it when they're coming up to something that feels like they ought to do marketing about it. And they start to think like, mm, probably should, uh, probably should get on this. Um, so I'd say that's the average. I would say, you know, ideally, I would want to be talking to people at least 12 months out from launch. You know, not everyone has that foresight necessarily, but it does pay dividends. In terms of thinking about it before the first line of code goes down, I think that a lot of that is conceptual. You know, if you are looking at releasing a game and making a game before you invest all that time in it, you want to do some market and competitor research at least and think about what else is out there? What's your USP going to be? Because um, there's nothing worse than getting to the end of, you know, such a long and difficult process as making a game and then discovering someone else has made something, you know, very, very, very similar and released it six months before you. I'm sorry. Did you say USP? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll, I shouldn't do the marketing jargon. Um, like unique <laughs> selling point. So, um, you know, the thing that's going to make your game stand out from the others. And that's... Um, something that can be quite challenging for people to identify. I have heard that you want to have some comparables on the market, some games that are similar to yours, because if you're doing something that has entirely never been done, there's probably a reason for that. Is that true? Ooh, I think it depends, really. I think, you know, in terms of genre and, you know, kind of mood and things like that, it's good to have, you know, points of reference. Um, one of the things though, that a lot of, a lot of indies seem to struggle with is distinguishing between your competition and your inspiration. So your inspiration might be Zelda. Um, you know, that could be a big influence on your design and, you know, your characters and things like that. But Nintendo's budget is so, so, you know, out of the stratosphere compared to any indie. They're not your competition because they're just playing a completely different game. Um, so I think that, yeah, it can be good to identify 
a couple of points of reference. They don't have to be directly exactly the same, just things that would appeal to the same people so that you can hook into that audience. When you say that after a game has come out, you can't unring that bell, what are some of the things that you can do for a game before it comes out that you can't do after it comes out? So in terms of um, you know press and to a slightly lesser extent influences, um, you know, it's very important that when you um, approach them about a news beat, that it is news. Um, so, you know, a game coming out, you should really be talking to the press weeks beforehand. Um, especially if you want to secure anything like review coverage, you need to make sure that people have access to the build and have time to play it um, and write something about it prior to that launch day. Um, ultimately, if you reach out after that's happened, then it's not really news because it's already out there. So it's going to be a lot less appealing to um, journalists um, because it's not an exclusive. It's not, you know, shiny and exciting anymore. So that's a real uphill battle. Um, You need to kind of maximize the opportunities you get. Um, To go back to the Zelda comparison, if you're working on the next Breath of the Wild, you know, pretty much anything you do is news, right? But if you're an indie, you don't get that luxury. So you have to make sure that you like absolutely capitalize on every moment you get. So your announcement and your launch are the big ones that should apply to pretty much every game. Um, but some games will have smaller kind of other beats as well, such as, you know, an early access or a closed beta or something like that. I noticed that your site's blog has a lot of useful tips for those indie developers, like what is a press release and how do you write one or Mm. five hard truths about your indie game. And you also mentioned earlier that for budgetary reasons, some developers may choose to do some of the marketing on their own and then work with Game If You Are for other parts. So with blog posts like that, you're certainly empowering indie studios to do some of their own marketing. How much do you recommend that they do on their own? You know, I think if you can't uh, budget for kind of getting in either someone in-house, a freelancer or an agency, um, then you should try and do as much as you can yourself. Now, that doesn't mean try and do everything. You know, developers have so many things going on, you know, just trying to get the game sorted that it's not really reasonable to expect them to be a full marketing team as well. And particularly for solo developers, that can be so hard. What I would recommend at a minimum is that you should have, um, you know, a a bit of an online presence, um, you know, a social media presence. Don't try and do every platform. Um, I would recommend Twitter personally um, at a bare minimum because it's very much where the games industry houses itself. Um, so I would, I would re- definitely recommend having a Twitter account. You will need some form of trailer, um, you know, and that is something that you you, you can make in house if you need to. Um, and I would say contacting press and influencers um you know you you won't necessarily have access to be able to do kind of mass distribution of press releases but you absolutely can email um target members of the press that you think might be interested in your game and um say you know we'd love to offer you a code you know we'd love you to cover this um let us know if you're interested and you know at least on that level you should be doing doing something if you if you have more budget and you can afford to get someone in, um, you know, getting an in-house marketer, I think, is is really useful. And a freelancer will be able to help a lot. One thing that I think that developers should be aware of is the difference between a generalist marketer and a community manager, because I see a lot of people 
hiring community managers and then expecting them to do all of their marketing. Um, and those are two different roles. And, um, you know, there are many fantastic marketers who are community managers um, and vice versa. Um, but I think sometimes there's a bit of confusion on the part of devs of, of where one begins and the other ends. Yeah, we've had community managers on this podcast before. Genevieve LeBlanc comes to mind, and mm. we talked about the role of the community manager. We didn't talk so much about the marketing aspect, because I imagine that if I were to try to distinguish the two roles, the community manager is interacting with the players, with the gamers, whereas the marketer is working more with the press. I think community management is something I would see as part of any good marketing strategy for a game. Um, it would be very rare that we would do a strategy for a client and tell them, no, nah, don't do any community work whatsoever. <laughs> um, that would be, that would be unusual. And, you know, it is thought that even outside of games, community is going to be like the pillar of marketing going forward. Um, and certainly it's something that uh, millennials and Gen Z respond to quite positively. So, so I think that it's, you know, it's important to have that, um, the the thing that I sometimes see though is people expecting a community manager to to also take charge of all aspects of marketing, and if if that's what you want, then you should be advertising for you know for a more generalist position, um, because it's you know it's not it's not really really uh, kind of part of traditional community management, although it often gets folded in. Um, but I do think that um, you know a, a good community manager is worth their weight in gold. Um, and if you can get one, you should absolutely go for it. Um, I would recommend that to um, to anyone who is, you know, making an indie game. If you can't do that, if you don't have, you know, the budget or the space for that, um, then I do recommend the developers should be reasonably present in their community, um, you know, interacting on Twitter and Discord and places like that, um, maybe doing some development streams because people love to see see a bit behind the curtain of the process and get to know the individual behind a game. One platform that has absolutely, you know, been phenomenal and blown up is TikTok. And what people have responded to so well on there has been developers just being very open about the process of development and, you know, themselves as individuals. Um, so it doesn't have to be like a polished you know, kind of standoffish sort of professionalism. Um, you know, people love indies partially because of their, you know, the heart and uh, personality they have. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, indie developers are really tasked with getting their game out. They're not always available to do these things. On my own indie podcast, I had times where developers would email me and say, hey, will you cover my game? And I would write back and say, I would love to. Are you available for a podcast interview? And they would say, oh, no, we don't have time for that. We're busy working on the game. Or some of them would say, I'd love to, but I don't have the English language skills because indie games are being made all across the globe. So that's a place where game, if you are, comes in very useful. But as you mentioned, not only are they strapped for time, they're also sometimes strapped for money. Indie games are being made on a shoestring budget. So how do you recommend they budget for marketing? Because if, if they don't, they're not going to achieve the success that they're striving for. It's an integral part of their game development strategy. So, but how do we make sure that they have the budget for that? Is it just Kickstarter? Uh, I mean, Kickstarter is one way um, that you can get some funds, but to pull off a successful Kickstarter is a marketing feat in itself. You know, most successful Kickstarters, uh, you know, have been planning about 12 months before launch and, you know, doing community and marketing activities. Um, 
whenever someone comes to me and they're like, oh, we want to go on Kickstarter next month, I'll be like, okay, so so what have you done so far to grow your community? And they'll say, oh, we've got 20 people. And I'm like, please don't go on Kickstarter next month. You know, most most Kickstarters fail. So I think, you know, in terms of, of putting the budget aside and things like that, um, what I would recommend is that people start doing their research um, early on in the process, you know, and it depends on how they're funding the development process generally, um, you know, whether that's, you know, out of their, you know, personal savings, which is the case for some solo developers or investors, or, you know, if they're applying to kind of indie games funds and things like that, um, do a bit of research before that and get some quotes from people um, about what, uh, what you could expect things to cost, what it would cost for different elements of marketing. What I would say is if you do that, be upfront with the person. Like if someone said to me, hey, I just need some quotes, you know, ballpark figures so that I can, you know, kind of go to an investor or a publisher and explain, um, you know, what I need, then I'm absolutely happy to do that. Um, don't, don't try and like pretend that it's like because you're about to kind of buy a product because you'll get your answer much quicker and you know it'll be a lot easier for everyone if you just say like hey can you just tell me roughly what this costs um mm. i don't believe in like playing chicken around prices particularly with potential clients i'm always happy to kind of just say right okay you know if this is your budget here's what you what you could potentially do um so you know i think that's i think that's a big part of it i think the other thing is is you know the the more of a time kind of run up you can put into it um the easier it'll be so if if you say to me you know i need to build a community of of 2000 people on my discord and i've got 2 weeks to do it to achieve that's probably going to cost you quite a bit of money if you have 2 years to do it then that's a different story you know so i would say kind of give yourself enough enough leeway to try and achieve what you need well, that's really useful to ask for quotes and to just be upfront about where you are in the process and what sort of information you're looking for. I don't know if I would need to provide some parameters, but hypothetically, can you give me a range of how much a person should budget? Like, let's say they're coming out with, it's their second game. Okay. Their first game didn't do great, but they're okay. working on an, an original IP for their second game. It's coming out in six months. They have a small Twitch and TikTok following from their first game, mm -hmm. but they haven't gotten a lot of press before and they're looking to up that for their next outing. That sort of situation, what I would be suggesting is that, I mean, I only I only have so many points of reference because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know about what other agencies charge and things like that. And I uh, probably, probably wouldn't be... Um, my boss's favorite person if I just, you know, say all our prices on a podcast, because obviously they might change with inflation and stuff like that. Um, sure. Broadly speaking, what I would say if someone came to me with that description is that at a bare minimum, they should have um, some strategic input um, and, um, you know, uh, an announcement campaign and a launch campaign, um, PR campaign, each of those. Um, that would be kind of like the bare bones of what I would suggest they go for. And I would say that you, for that, should probably budget. I work in pounds, not dollars. So um, it, I'll, I'll try and convert. Um, about £7,000. Um, so maybe about $10,000. That's broad strokes, though, because also if, you know, if that wasn't feasible, there's, there's, you could, you could, for example, rather than doing a full strategic 
segment, you could do some consultancy, um, which we have done for clients in the past and just kind of given them a, you know, as, as much of a crash course as possible in marketing strategy within a few hours of consultancy. So there's, mm. there's always ways, um, and there's always kind of things you can do, but ideal world. That's what I'd be saying at a minimum. And I just want to emphasize to our listeners, that was not a formal quote. And if you want (laughs) more information, then please reach out to either Game, if you are another marketing firm with exact details about your situation and what your budget is. Because if you have $2,000 to spend and somebody comes back to you and says, well, what you're describing is $10,000, it's useful for the marketer to know what they have to work with so that they can come back with a reasonable strategy that works both for your game and for your budget. Absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, and I could say this for myself and everyone else I know in marketing, um, when people ask you what your budget is, it's not because they're trying to like upsell you or charge you extra. It's literally because they're trying to work out what the most they can give you is within your budget and what's going to make the most sense. So if you, if you have a budget of $2,000, like, yeah, you might not be able to get a kind of full works, uh, campaign, but you could probably get, um, you know, some really helpful consultancy time, um, and maybe, you know, kind of a, a, a small campaign, um, you know, you, you'll be able to get a bit of something and it will definitely help you and give you more direction. You know, I've done, I've done projects with clients who've had that sort of budget where we've done, um, you know, a couple of hours consultancy, every couple of weeks for a couple months. So, you know, we'd meet and have like, you know, a two and a half hour session. And then, um, you know, they'd go away with homework to do that. I set them essentially, but like marketing homework and, uh, and they'd come back in a couple of weeks and say, you know, Hey, you know, what you told us to do with Twitter is really working. Look at our progress. And we'd kind of analyze it and just, nudge them in the right direction repeatedly. And since you said you work in pounds, does your clientele span the globe or are you focused mostly on developers in the UK? Uh, it does span the globe. Um, we we do our business accountancy in pounds um, because we're based in the UK, but we have clients all over. I've worked with um, plenty of clients in the US um, and um, you know some in uh, other parts of Europe as well. We've got clients in France and Russia um, we had a client in Mexico last year. You know, we've we've definitely uh, we've definitely worked with people all over. So, in the time that you have spent with Game, if you are, are there any particular successes or victories you want to share? Like, you reached out to this really popular streamer and you landed some great coverage for a game or something like that that you were really proud of. Ooh. Um... A few. Um, one of my one of my big nerd moments last year was um, the the trailer that I mentioned earlier. Um, Justin McElroy did the voiceover for us for that, and I'm a massive fan of the Adventure Zone. So that was uh, that was a great a great day for me. <laughs> um, it was very 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 kind of him. Um, aside from that, um, anytime we've done a Kickstarter, that's always been tremendously, uh, you know, kind of emotional, um, and wonderful when they get funded. Um, Lonesome Village, uh, last year did a Kickstarter that was, I mean, amazingly successful. I think they raised something like 400% of what they intended. Um, and that was, you know, just a really, really wonderful thing to be a part of, um, just because they were, so overjoyed. Um, Weaving Tides is another one that was very close to my heart. 
um, that we did uh, Kickstarter with, and they just launched their game. So um, little plug for them. Um, it's a super cute game about um, dragons in like a woven world. Um, it's really, really wonderful. So uh, that just came out on Steam and Switch. You know, it's been really lovely because I do you know, mostly strategic planning stuff. Um, it's been really nice to see a lot of these games, you know, starting to kind of launch and go out into the world and, um, you know, really kind of soar. Um, because, you know, I often see them when they're at a much earlier point in the, in the development and marketing process. No, that's great that you're able to work with them ideally from beginning to end and see the game come along, the marketing strategy come along, and finally the success of both of them and that the game gets the coverage it deserves. Mm. So you've had some wonderful times at Game If You Are, and we could talk all day about marketing, but you have a lot of other roles in the gaming industry. I also am curious to spend some time talking with you about, such as Limit Break, which is a mentorship program within the video game industry that you are currently enrolled in as a mentee, somebody who has the counsel of a more veteran member of the organization. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly it. This is my second year as a limit break mentee. And what prompted you to apply to this organization? Because not everybody understands or feels the attraction to having a mentor. So what made you think that is something that I would benefit from? Honestly, I think it's something that, um, you know, everyone can benefit from being a part of. Um, for me, I didn't get into games until I'd already tried and not enjoyed a couple of other careers. So I got into games and I was like, I really want to hit the ground running. I want to be part of this community. And um, having a connection to a mentor was was really key for me, um, especially under the circumstances of covid especially, um, you know, being in a remote team anyway, you know, I was remote even before the pandemic. Um, I was, I was like, I really want to reach out to people outside of, um, you know, kind of who I speak to on an average daily basis. Um, so, you know, I, I was very keen on it. Um, my acquaintances within the industry had already kind of been talking about it and how great it was. Um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Anissa who, um, who set it up. Um, it's, it's just a very cool initiative and, you know, really anyone who is, is kind of, you know, in games and could, you know, would qualify for limit break, I would absolutely recommend that you apply. And what does the structure of that mentorship take? Do you have like weekly one hour zoom calls? So at a minimum, you meant to do like a monthly chat. Um, and the mentee is meant to kind of come to those conversations with goals, um, outlined, and, uh, and the mentor will kind of work with them on those. I think a lot of people speak more frequently with their mentor than that. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not unheard of for people to chat every two weeks or even every week. Um, it really just depends on both people and their schedules. Um, you know, I've, um, you know, my mentor last year was fantastic. Um, uh, her name's Haley and she is director of brand communications for Mediatonic and she is just powerhouse of marketing knowledge um you know really really lovely person um and my mentor this year is callum underwood um you know who is more on the biz dev side of things which has just given me kind of a whole new range of insight um you know i've had quite informal like you know styles of mentorship with both of them um which is what kind of worked for us but i know that some people prefer 
more structure. So, you know, I think it really depends on the individual, but you can, you can kind of suss that out when you have an initial conversation with a potential mentor and see who feels like a fit for you. So that implies that there's some sort of a matchmaking process where you are not necessarily committed to somebody yet? Yes. Yeah. So um, they've done it differently this year from last year. But yes, there's a, you know, a system in place where you can kind of um, uh, last year, it was kind of match the matchmaking happened sort of behind the scenes this year, it was a bit more kind of visible to everyone. Um, so you could kind of um, go on someone's profile in the limit break system and say, you know, like ask, you know, request as a mentor and things like that. And, um, you know, everyone's got like a profile where they've written about themselves and what they could help with and stuff like that. You mentioned having a different mentor this year compared to last. Are these usually one year relationships? Uh, so yeah, the program is six months. Um, so you're meant to kind of have them as your official mentor for six months, but I would say that most of these relationships, you know, continue long after that. Um, just in a less kind of structured way. Um, you know, Haley and I still chat loads, um, but the formal mentorship part has ended. Um, but it's a really, it's a really great way to get to know people in games that you, you know, otherwise wouldn't necessarily get the chance to talk to as well. I haven't had a career coach myself. I've had other kinds of coaches and therapists in my life, but with a career coach, I would think one of my challenges would be that I don't know what I don't know. And if mm. I were to go into that meeting, I'm not sure what help I would be looking for or what questions to ask. So you said that it's the mentee's responsibility to come to the meetings with an agenda. How do you know what to talk about? So I think, I mean, for me, there were things that I could look at um, quite clearly in the sphere of what Haley was doing uh, with Fall Guys, which is, you know, just uh, so far beyond what I was working on in terms of kind of scope. Um, and budget there was you know there were obvious kind of gaps for me to to ask about um you know how how you go about campaigns like that um likewise with the stuff that callum works on um you know he helps the the team at inner sloth who do among us um so the you know there were kind of clear clear areas that i was keen to ask about um i also think though that it's worth being kind of strategic as a mentee in terms of your, you know, your own career and thinking about, well, actually what, what is going to be helpful for me? What knowledge is going to be useful for me? Um, what do I enjoy? You know, part of the reason why um, I requested Callum as a mentor this year is because he does biz dev. And one of the things I found when I moved into the head of client strategy role, rather than being a strategy manager was that I really love biz dev. Um, so I was, you know, particularly uh, interested in that side of things and wanted to understand it better. At the company where I work, we have a business development team as well. The responsibility of BizDev is to attract new clients and get them to sign contracts with our company. Is that the aspect of business that you're finding appealing? Um, so I have done a lot of that at Game If You Are. Um, that's been a big part of my role has been kind of new business and um, you know onboarding clients and things like that. Um, I I do like that, but there's also a whole side of biz dev in terms of, you know, what are the strategic business decisions for a game that I, uh, I'm really interested in. So, you know, what deals do you negotiate? Um, do you, you know, how, how do you broker a game pass contract? You know, um, should you release um, simultaneously or not? Um, you know, these, these are questions that you need 
you know, to take on a case by case basis, depending on the game. But, um, you know, that side of things is fascinating. You know, some of the details that have come out about, um, you know, Epic's, um, you know, free games and the deals they brokered for those are just fascinating. Um, and also the benefits that they can have for the games involved. So I think that there's a whole other side to biz dev in games that is, um, you know, not necessarily related to bringing on new clients, but more related to maximizing what you can get out of your game. You said that if you're eligible for Limit Break, that is something that you highly recommend people sign up for. Who is eligible for Limit Break? Uh, Limit Break is for marginalized genders in games. So that could be um, women, um, trans women, um, trans men, non-binary people, um, basically any gender other than uh, cisgendered men, um, or if you are LGBT um, in, in any capacity um because they it was previously just for marginalized genders but this year um limit break partnered with outmaking games um and opened up to lgbtq people as well oh that's fantastic i'll include a link to that to limitbreak.co.uk in the show notes if anybody is interested in applying to be a mentor or a mentee correct and you can be either one right? or even both right you can indeed yeah yeah absolutely that's fantastic so other than applying, like I would not be eligible because I'm a straight white cis man. What can I do to help Limit Break? So I think it's always worth promoting, um, you know, on social media and things like that. Um, when you see the opportunity, I mean, even with the amount of um, attention Limit Break got this year, which was a phenomenal. I mean, I think they had hundreds of people in the first day signing up, which is incredible and a real testament to the team's hard work. Um, I also still spoke to people who were like, oh, you know, I'm kicking myself because I missed the window to sign up. So it's always good to, um, you know, to promote it, to talk about it um, and to, um, you know, kind of make anyone in your life that you think it would be good for aware. Um, you know, if you if you know someone, you're like, mm, you know, I think this would be really helppful for you, like mention it. Like, oh, have you considered applying to Limit Break? You know, I think that's, I think those are really good things to do if you are a, you know, a games company that has, um, you know, real interest in supporting this sort of initiative and extra cash. I know that they are, you know, uh, interested in things like sponsorship and things like that, but that's a conversation you'd have to have with, uh, with Anissa and the team. But, um, yeah, a little plug, go and sponsor Limit Break. Um, and, um, Anissa, you can buy me a drink later. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, th- those would be the major things. Great. Thank you. I will certainly be sharing this on social media. Now, there is another organization that you have also been a part of that brings people together, and that is the Game Industry Lunch Club. Now, if I understand correctly, this is something that you founded earlier this year, 2021. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it is. And what is the Game Industry Lunch Club? Is it a bunch of people getting on Zoom and watching each other have lunch? Um, I mean, we, we try to keep the, the watching of chewing to a minimum. Um, but it is a, it is a monthly meeting of people in the games industry. Um, you know, not necessarily developers, but, uh, you know, people who work, you know, in or around games, um, to have quite an informal, uh, conversation about something that, you know, we're interested in. Um, so we've had, uh, talks on, um, uh, diversity and inclusion in games. We've had a talk on fashion in games. 
Um, we are, this is a sneak preview for anyone who's interested. The next one is going to be about um, game development and roller skating and the community of roller skating game devs. So I'm really excited to hear about that. Um, huh. So there's, you know, there's loads of um, kind of interesting topics, um, but we try to keep it informal. Um, and also it's not recorded so that people can talk about things, you know, even if it's like, you know, something a bit sensitive and things like that, or if people want to vent about something at work that week. Um, and the other thing I was very keen on was that it should be as non-intrusive as possible, which is why it's a lunch club so that people can do it on their lunch break without having to, um, you know, give up extra time in their day. Um, for, um, you know, for, for some people, it's been a breakfast club. Um, we had at the fashion one, um, a fashion designer, a jewelry designer called Kelly, um, who has a, a games inspired jewelry line and she's based out of New York. Um, the, brand is called Soulbound NYC. Um, she joined us at 7am her time, bless her, and um, and sat in for the for the games and fashion chat, which was just awesome to have her there. Fantastic. And since this happens in real time and it's not recorded, that means you need to be there when it's happening if you want yes. to partake or participate. So that means that you limit capacity, you sell tickets, is that correct? Uh, they're free, but yes, it is limited capacity. And how many people is that? So I've, I, I have been persuaded to push up the capacity a bit. Um, you know, so it started off with about kind of 10 to 12 people and I have been pushed to a kind of cheeky 16 to 18. I, I There's always a lot of demand for, for these spaces, um, you know, and they do sell out very, very quickly. But I don't want to sacrifice the intimacy of the occasion um, and, you know, kind of... Um, have it have it be less you know less informal and less friendly i i want people to walk away feeling like they got to know the other people who were there in the same way that you would if you'd all you know sat around a table and had lunch together in the real world which was my original dream that covid uh, you know has put a bit of a spanner in the works of um i hope one day to do in person um games industry lunch clubs um the idea for it was born from um, something that they do in some very traditional uh, members clubs here in the UK, which is where there will often in the dining room be a long table where you can sit as a signal that you are, you know, you're there and you want to meet new people and chat to new people um, and that you're open to kind of conversation and, you know, anyone can come and sit with you. Um, my, my hope for games industry lunch club is that it sends the message of like, you know, come and sit with us. If we have hundreds of people though, that won't, you know, we'll, we'll lose that. So it's a, it's a tightrope. Um, I'm trying to keep everyone as happy as possible with it. Yeah. When you sit at a long table, you often end up talking to the person sitting right next to you and not to the person at the other end. It can be hard mm. to meet everybody when the table gets too long. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Does the lunch club then have not only a featured presenter like the, the jewelry and fashion that you mentioned, but also like a cocktail hour leading up to that where everybody is just socializing? So we actually usually start with the featured presentation. Um, and then that is, you know, kind of, you know, we're talking kind of 10, maximum 15 minutes of the hour long slot. 
And then um, after that, we have kind of open discussion. And, and you know, that tends to go around the houses as well. It, you know, some of it's directly about the topic at hand, but we've also gone off on, uh, on tangents about things like, um, you know, boats and uh, what we would do if we all had a boat. Um, there was a deep discussion about which supermarket paella is the best. Um, mm. You know, all the kinds of funny and natural things that happen when people get chatting and are at ease. So it's um, it's a lovely atmosphere and I really, really enjoy them and look forward to them. You mentioned that Limit Break is targeted at marginalized individuals. Is the Games Industry Lunch Club, does that have a similar mission? No, um, it's, you know, it's for anyone working in games. Um, you know, I was keen for it to be you know, for people within the games industry, um, the majority of the people who have come have been, um, have been women. Um, it has, it has skewed, um, women, but that's not, you know, that's not by design. Um, and you know, men have also come along and are very welcome. Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not for a specific marginalized group. You're not only the organizer of the lunch club, of course, you're also an attendee and you get to be in the audience of these great talks. What are some things that you have learned either as an organizer or as an attendee of lunch club? Tons, to be honest. Um, so I, I really enjoyed our very first guest, um, Chinzia, who is, um, you know, a specialist in diversity and inclusion. She works for, um, splash damage. And, um, it was just a, it was a fantastic session that taught me a lot about the perspective of, you know, larger businesses like that on diversity and, and inclusion and how you can make a business case for it and how you can frame things in that way. So that was fantastic. Um, Leon who founded uh, balance patch, um, our second guest, um, talked a lot about, um, LGBTQ representation in games and, you know, the kind of different routes into games. And um, he took, he took a, a route into games that was similar to mine, but also different because we both, we both have a past in academia. Um, but it was great to be able to chat about those kind of pitfalls and, you know, different experiences. Um, and um and Caitlin, who uh works as head of UI and UX at Dressed, which is a fashion game that um that uses kind of, you know, it has it has real world um fashion in it, like um from Gucci and um, you know, kind of Prada, all the big fashion houses, um, was talking a bit about those partnerships and how they work, which is just fascinating because um, you know, I, I worked in fashion before games, but not in not in that sort of capacity. And, you know, hearing about, yes, this is how we broker these deals. And, you know, this is who we call it, you know, this is we call someone up at Chanel or whatever. Um, that was just absolutely fascinating to hear about. That's really interesting. The only time I have thought about fashion and games is from a perspective of feminism is like mm. why is this woman not wearing more clothes mm. you know that is not appropriate for a soldier going into combat to be showing that much skin yeah but you know in other scenarios i just always I, I can't say i've thought about fashion in games and i didn't realize that there was so much thought being put into it that's fascinating yeah absolutely um i mean caitlin and i have just um just put together a, a description for a, a longer lecture that would be recorded, um, you know, that we've submitted to a conference. So um, fingers crossed, watch this space. There will be, there will be more <laughs> to come on that topic. Um, but we will see, we'll, we'll find out if it gets accepted uh, probably after this podcast airs. So uh, I will, I will let you know. 
people who are interested in this can find out more online at gameslunch.club. So that is a community that you have helped to build. You are part of the community of Limit Break. And building community has been something you've been doing for longer than you've been in the games or even the fashion industry. When you were working on your PhD, you found that to be a very isolating experience and you created a community around that PhD write-up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, the reason it was called PhD write-up was because I was at the, I was at the write-up phase, which is the kind of final, well, what I thought was the final year of my PhD, (laughs) it wound up taking me longer as they always do. Um, and, um, writing up a, a PhD can be, I, well, I certainly found it really isolating because you're, you have this gargantuan task that you're working on, on your own. Um, you're often working in your, in your bedroom, you know, or at best in a kind of, you know, university library. And you don't really have anyone else who's working on that with you. And I, uh, yeah, I found it to be very isolating. The, the subject matter of mine was quite uh, challenging as well. Um, because it was about, so it's in intercultural communication, um, with an intersectional feminism slant on it. Um, but specifically I, I was looking at, um, communication and language shifting in creative writing by refugees um and the participants i worked with were all survivors of torture so you know the subject matter was um was quite challenging to be honest um so between that the fact that you're kind of working on your own um the fact that a lot of phd students are set up to compete with each other rather than support each other um you know it's that kind of academic hot housing environment um I found that it was a very, a very lonely experience. And, um, I think that, you know, coupled with that, I'd, I'd stayed at the same university where I did my undergraduate degree, but a lot of my peers obviously had, had moved away and, you know, gone and got jobs in the real world and stuff like that. So it gives you this sort of arrested development feeling as well. And a lot of kind of envy when you see people on social media kind of, you know, uh, living what seemed to be, you know, more exciting and glamorous lives. So yeah, I was, I, I was very keen to establish something, um, as a bit of a supportive space with kind of some honesty, um, about the challenges of it, but, um, you know, it wound up, it wound up gaining a bit of momentum. Um, you know, my Twitter handle was PhD write up up until I started working in games and I still have, um, contact with a lot of other kind of, academics and recovering academics shall i say um through that so yeah yeah it was really helpful so was this an, a community where you were meeting with other phd students or were you sharing on instagram in a one way medium how did this community take shape uh instagram and twitter mostly um there's a lot of kind of communication back and forth um, and there were people that I met, you know, through that time who remain good friends of mine today. Um, uh, there's a woman who runs Stylish Academic and we got chatting then and, um, you know, we're still close friends and, you know, she was, she was a guest at our wedding, um, which was, you know, years, years later and well after I'd handed in my thesis. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it was, it was kind of one way sharing, but with a lot of communication with each other. And I found a lot of other PhDs were also kind of looking for similar interactions. So that was quite nice. I'm not sure I realized how isolating it could be because I, the school I went to was a science and engineering school. Mm. And very often you have teams of people working in labs on projects. And that's certainly 
the image that is presented in the news today yes. where you see like NASA landing a rover on Mars. It's not one person in one room cheering it on. It's a whole team of people. But it mm. seems sounds like it's a very different experience at the PhD level. It's even uh, you said it could even be competitive, which surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I think I you know, I my PhD was was in um the social sciences, not 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 the hard sciences. It wasn't in um, you know, anything like that. People who are in kind of physics, uh, biology, chemistry, those sorts of topics, engineering, often do work as part of a lab team. And that is, um, you know, it's challenging in its own way. I think that the um, the work-life balance can often skew worse for those students because they do a full, you know, full day in the lab of maybe nine to six um, or sometimes later. And then they come home and they're meant to do the actual, you know, writing towards their thesis. Um, so I think that can be really hard in other ways, but at least there is a bit more kind of camaraderie and, um, you know, community around you. Whereas if you're doing something that is not part of a, um, you know, a, a team like that, then it can feel a bit, you know, very lonely. And when you said it was even competitive, I mean, I imagine that there weren't other students writing on the same topic as you. So in what sense were you competing with them? Uh, you would get a lot of kind of um, pressures um, about, you know, whether you were making progress at the same level as other students and something like that. Um, sometimes um, more senior academics would, you know, deliberately try and set up PhD students to compete against each other. That is something I have seen happen, unfortunately. Whilst most people were lovely and supportive. Um, there's definitely sometimes exploitation of PhD students as well um, and pressure put on to take on additional responsibilities and work, you know, even when you when you don't, you know, have the capacity to do that. Um, and there's an element of, oh, but but this person's doing it. So they're, you know, it's going to look better on their CV. Um, you know, to get an academic job is is really, really challenging. Um, and, you know, credit to anyone who who does go down that route. Um, it's not enough to have a PhD. You have to also have publications and, um, you know, kind of extracurriculars and awards and stuff like that to even get your foot in the door of a entry level academic role. So naturally things become quite, um, you know, pushy, pushy, shovey, shovey as a, uh, as a friend of mine once described it, um, at times, which is not an environment I particularly like. No, I, I can see that with your work in the games lunch club and the limit break, you're more of a collaborative individual. You want to see people lift each other up, not go head to head. I believe that when the tide rises, it brings all boats up with it. Um, you know, I think that's true of um, of almost every scenario. And I think that um, one of the things I really love about the games industry, um, you know, is that, and, and I am sure there are many, many examples of competition and things like that, but there's also a lot of support. And I often kind of, you know, have to reassure developers like, Hey, if you go onto Twitter, like engage with other developers because they will be your, your biggest cheerleaders. You know, I've seen developers, you know, sharing each other's content, directing their audience to each other. Um, you know, indie, Indie game Twitter can be absolutely lovely. So if you're if you're a developer who is nervous about, you know, stepping your foot into that world or or even just an individual who who wants to work in the space or does work in the space, um, please don't be nervous because it's absolutely um, you know, it's lovely and there's lots of wonderful people. I made some very good friends through Twitter. 
That's been my experience as an observer as well. I, I just read a statistic that over 10,000 games came out for Steam last year, and a developer might be inclined to think that that's my competition. But I've also seen, before the pandemic, collaborative co-working spaces where indie game developers are all sharing the same office space, all working on their own games. And then mm. I even had the opportunity to do an escape room with a dozen other game developers. And they weren't collaborators on any one game, but that night they were in trying to escape that room and they had a great time. I love that. That's so cool. I mean, you know, when when we're all vaccinated, I have, I've not yet had my vaccine. I'm too young um, to get my vaccine here in the UK. Um, but, uh, you know, when we're all vaccinated and, you know, touch wood that the world is is a bit more back to normal, um, I would really love to kind of arrange some kind of co-working days with other um, other games people here in London. And it's, you know, it's something I'd recommend for everyone because it just gives you that perspective as well. You know, you can turn to someone who isn't, you know, knows against your project all the time and just say, hey, what do you think of this? Give me your kind of first reactions or, you know, what do you think of this piece of art or this, you know, this sentence? And it just gives you that little bit of outside influence that I think can be really valuable. So you obviously have enthusiasm and talent for building community, for marketing games. Your background, as you mentioned, is a PhD where you were working with refugees and with non-English speakers. So how have your experiences and strengths as a PhD student and now as a doctor lent themselves to your current work? What thread would you say runs among them all? So I think the most important thing that um, you can apply as a principle in kind of marketing a game, in um, navigating sensitive situations, as I was in my PhD, in building community is empathy. Um, You know, you have to think about things from other people's perspective. So, um, you know, learning to undo a lot of my presumptions and my kind of, um, you know, my cultural kind of biases and things like that. And I don't mean, I don't mean biases in like kind of prejudice, but I just mean kind of, you know, the sort of assumptions that you make and you don't really think about has been really helpful for me. It's meant that I could spot things that are, you know, like, hey, you know, this sounds great to me, but that's not going to read well with, you know, an audience who are Gen Z, for example, or, um, you know, this, have, have you thought about how this is going to play in, in these sorts of countries and things like that? Um, being able to have that sort of um, step out of your own perspective um, approach is something that's been really, really helpful for me. And I think, you know, the PhD really taught me that um, because you had to absolutely kind of break down you know, your your starting point, really, and try and um, undo all those presumptions that you might make about people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, it's, it's challenging, because, you know, you often do these things subconsciously. Um, but I think it's helpful as well. If you're if you're a game developer, and you want to apply this principle, really, the number one thing is you need to kind of have empathy with the players. It's not enough for you to think about why you deserve for people to buy your game. Rather, you need to think about, well, why would I, if I were a player, buy this? Why? What would make me buy this over something else? What's going to speak to me? What What features am I going to enjoy? A prerequisite for empathy is creativity, being able to imagine yourself in somebody's other shoes. Mm. And certainly game developers have a certain kind of creativity, but I think you're right that you can become so dedicated and so focused on a task. And that's a good thing that it can be hard nonetheless to step out of that context and look at it from a different perspective. And it's great that your PhD 
taught you that both in a formal sense i'm sure some of it was inherent into your character as well but when you were working on your phd you, i imagine that you probably didn't necessarily see yourself going into the video games industry did you so uh if you had asked anyone who knew me and uh and my brother growing up if you'd said to any any person at all oh one of them is going to grow up to be a lawyer and the other is going to grow up to work in video games every <laughs> single person would have put it the other way around um, <laughs> because he was, um, you know, he still, he still does love games. Um, he was a, a dedicated gamer um, as a child and teen. I have vivid memories. He's a younger brother of, of my brother, Elliot holding a, you know, the old brick game boys, the gray ones. Mm -hmm. Um, he was playing one of those in the pram, um, you know, before, before he was walking, he's sitting there in a, in a stroller with a, um, with a game boy. Um, Whereas I was an argumentative uh, little kid, so um, so you know I think everyone would have had it the other way around. But I, um, I you know, I wound up going into games. Um, during my PhD, I um, you know I I found it really challenging, and you know I've I've kind of talked about this uh, elsewhere. But you know I I was diagnosed with uh, severe anxiety and depression, um, which is. It came as a bit of a shock to me. I'd realized something was wrong, um, you know, and and had had eventually, um, as with all of these things, probably later than I should have spoken to spoken to my GP about it. Um, but when I got the the official diagnosis back, and it was like, yeah, this is this is severe, and you know, you have depression, as because I knew I was anxious, um, and you have depression and anxiety. I was like, oh my word! Like, you know, I had no idea that I, I was as ill as I was. Um, and, you know, I had a real sort of, um, uh, I, I don't want to call it a crisis because that kind of implies that it was more of a kind of a, a singular moment. It was actually more of a kind of a longer period of just feeling this dread of not really knowing what I wanted to do, knowing I didn't want to be an academic because I was so miserable doing my PhD and feeling a bit lost. And um, at one point, my my mum came down to London, um, you know, made the 300 mile trip. And, um, you know, was like, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I actually pulled up a, um, a Eurogamer video because I'd been watching a lot of Let's Plays while I was working to, you know, as a kind of soothing presence while I'm sitting on my own. And I was like this, I would love to, I would love to do this sort of work. Um, it was uh, Johnny Chiodini and Aoife Wilson playing Life is Strange, um, mm. which will, which will date it. But I was like this, I really want to do this. And my mom was a bit perplexed, I think, at the time. And I went away and I did a couple of other things. I, um, like I say, I worked in fashion for a bit. Um, you know, I had a couple of kind of short-term freelance contracts, but I, um, you know, I decided to really renew my efforts. Um, and I went to EGX, um, which is like a games kind of conference here in London, um, with a stack of CVs and cards. And I, I networked my butt off for a couple of days. I got my CV reviewed five times by different people and I took notes um, and I also stayed in touch with the people I met and it was Hannah Flynn who works at fail better games, who actually put me in touch with, um, with the people who would give me my first job in games. Um, after, after I met her and she reviewed my CV there and we are, we're still friends. Um, I, you know, everyone, no matter what job you do, you have days when you feel like, Oh, like, you know, but I don't, you know, don't want to get out of bed today. Um, but I have felt since I started working in games, like, oh, this is this is it for me. This is what I want to do. I'm in the right place. And I'd never felt that before, not when I was a teacher, not when I was doing my PhD, not when I was working in fashion. Um, but something about games just clicked. 
So um, yeah, really, really happy I made the change, even if I didn't come to it until I was about 27. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm so glad that you found that. And even if you didn't find it until you were 27, there are some people who don't find it until they're 37 or 47. So Absolutely. Alan Rickman didn't act until he was in his 40s, you know? See, there you go. And I understand that you've been in the games industry for about a year or two working with Game If You Are, and you already have your next adventure planned. I This podcast is coming out in June, so I don't know how much you can talk about it, but uh, what can you tell us about what's next for you? Um, I'm going to, I think it will probably be announced by then, but I will retrospectively con- contact you and let you know <laughs> if, it, if it hasn't. Um, I am moving to Robot Teddy to be a consultant. So I'm going to be working um, still with indies, um, but in more of a, um, you know, a generalist consultant capacity, helping with um, biz dev and, you know, brokering deals and supporting more widely, as well as still advising on the kind of, you know, big picture marketing stuff. So I'm very, very excited um, to to be moving there. I think it's going to be really cool. Um, uh, you know, that the conversations that I started having with Callum a while ago before he became my mentor, um, you know, made me realize it was something I was really interested in. And then it just happened to work out um, that there was an opening and it was a good fit for me. So I'm, I'm really hyped to be kind of doing something new. Um, you know, I'm starting, starting towards the end of June. So, um, you know, hopefully it'll be, hopefully it'll be public knowledge by now, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll do a tweet at some point to do an official announcement. Well, congratulations. That's Thank very you. exciting. I'm happy for you. I'm, I'm very happy for me too. Um, it's, um, you know, it's always, it's always a bit bittersweet when you kind of uh, move from one thing to another. Uh, and I think, you know, I've, I've benefited tremendously from the past year and a half a game. If you are, um, been able to work on some fantastic projects and, you know, with some wonderful people. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's also a really exciting time for me to be kind of, you know, moving on to something new. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully learning a lot of new skills as well. Yeah. You know, when you move to a new environment and take on new challenges, it can be bittersweet, but it doesn't erase the accomplishments you've done so far. That work still stands and it shouldn't erase the relationships you've built either. The people that you have worked with will still be out there rooting for you, you hope. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've, uh, uh, Taya, who I work with most directly in the strategy department, um, you know, we, we talk all day, every day on Slack at the minute. And we've said that the only change for us is going to be that, you know, we start, we move to, you know, messaging on Twitter instead of, <laughs> instead of Slack. So that's going to be, you know, the biggest, the biggest shift. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's an exciting time. Um, it seems like a lot of people are moving roles at the minute. I think every time I go on Twitter, I'm seeing someone announcing something. Um, and a lot of my friends who are outside games have also recently got new roles. So maybe it's just the season for it. Well, I think the pandemic has had two effects. One is a lot more jobs are now available to people who didn't geographically have access to them before. Mm. And the pandemic has also encouraged a lot of us to think about what it is we want to be doing with our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, I think that sort of reflection is good. I think it's so easy to, you know, sleepwalk through five years and then turn around and be like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> um, yep. So, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it's good for people to keep kind of being, you know, strategic about where they want to be. And if where they want to be is where they are, then fantastic. But if they want to move, then also they should go for it. And regardless of where you go, people will still be able to find you online. Where do they recommend they follow you to find out about your new adventures? 
Twitter. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I used to work in fashion and fashion's very Instagram based. And I do, I do have an Instagram, but I, I post it much less frequently. If you want to see photos of my cooking Instagram, but if you want to hear about my games industry, um, you know, kind of antics and adventures, then definitely, um, Twitter. Um, it's just at Melissa R. Chaplin, um, cause my middle, middle initials are, um, and you know, uh, my DMs are open if people want to ask me random questions about <laughs> about marketing their indie game or anything similar. Excellent. I will include a link in the show notes at polygamer.net to your Twitter handle, Melissa R. Chaplin, as well as all the other resources we've mentioned today. Melissa, or Dr. Chaplin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. To <laughs> you can call me Melissa. It's okay. <laughs> this has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. There was one more question I did want to ask you, which was, you've worked in a variety of media, a variety of industries. Do you still write poetry? I have not written poetry in a while, but I did um, I did run a creative writing workshop a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, on, um, it was a virtual one, but I did run one um, that involved some poetry. I think for me, the next creative venture would be trying to hopefully make a game of my own because I think it'll give me a lot more perspective on what the developers go through. But I know I would not be the first person to fall into that, <laughs> that pit, um, and, uh, and struggle. But I think it would be, I think it would be a really valuable experience. So that's, uh, that's probably the next, the next venture for me.